Hello, and welcome to the episode of Heavy Metal 101, which will, at long last, make our parents oh so proud of the fine, learned gentlemen we have become. are breaking new ground today by actually kind of sort of focusing on something that you know something about. Specifically, we'll be discussing the classical music portion of the roots of heavy metal music, as particularly found in the Italian Baroque and in the paradigm of the Romantic Virtuoso. So how does it feel to know what the hell it is we are talking about for once in your godforsaken life? I feel a tremendous amount of pressure. Yeah, you can't you can't I, just punt, right? Yeah, I have a degree in this. <laughs> I need to actually back up my statements with facts and information. I'm assuming your future employers are currently listening. I'm assuming they are as well. Yes, yes. yes. So hopefully John will carry himself with dignity and provide us with all sorts of insights. I will do my level best. Oh, good, good. Thank you for that. For those of you who don't know this, John and I, Eric, have both spent the lion's share of our respective lives working in the field of concert music, which is that stuff which is colloquially known as classical music. Now, I spent my undergraduate and graduate years studying music composition and piano, and my entire adult life following a delightful but short-lived career as a singing waiter, as a freelance composer and pianist, and later as a college professor teaching primarily music history and music theory. I'm also currently working on my PhD in music education, which is oodles of fun, except when it distracts me from this monumentally important podcast. John, can you remind the nice people of your classical music bona fides? Sure, my background is as a bass player, so I have a bachelor's degree in double bass performance. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I have a master's and a doctorate in instrumental and orchestral conducting, so uh, interpretive dance. Yes, that's, that's what it is, and you do it beautifully. Thank you very I much. I do say so myself. Despite all surface appearances to the contrary, John and I actually do know some things about some stuff. Although I'm guessing that John is on somewhat less sure footing when it comes specifically to the classical influence on heavy metal, no? That is accurate. Yeah, I figured as much. So we're going to work towards convincing John that these two disparate things actually are connected and convincing you nice people of that as well. These Roots of Metal episodes, and there will be a few more over the time we do this podcast, they will flow just a bit differently than our standard Heavy Metal 101 format. Today, we're going to listen to and discuss four examples. Two will be classical pieces, and two will be heavy metal ditties. If you're listening to this in the Spotify-only version that allows us to play any music we damn well please, you'll be able to listen to those as part of the flow of the episode. Except for Neil Young. Yeah, my episode on the Neil Young roots of heavy metal is currently in a holding pattern. <laughs> if you are not familiar, particularly with these classical examples, and you're listening to this in some other format other than Spotify, which is great, just fine, we do strongly advise that you look at the show notes and click on the YouTube links that will take you directly to our recommended recordings. Or you can just search out the pieces and find your own recordings. But the ones we use are real, real good. So give them a listen if you can. So we'll consider the background of each of these pieces on their own merits just a little bit, but particularly we're going to try to relate them to each other as we examine the oft misunderstood and underappreciated connection between what are arguably the most and the least prestigious genres of music around, that being classical music and heavy metal. And gosh, are we ever going to have fun doing it. John, are you ready for some goddamn fun? I love fun. Yeah, you are Mr. No, excuse me, Dr. Thank you. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> Which you should definitely get on your license plate, by the way. Oh, yeah, I love a vanity plate. Everyone That's, loves... This is very me. Especially a doctor vanity yes, plate. Yeah. Yes. Heavy metal, like all rock music, owes its primary and most direct debt to the African-American blues music of the 20th century, from which it derives its harmonic language, vocal inflections, and tendency to have improvisatory guitar solos. Also from the blues, it gets the pentatonic, or five-note scale, and also the six-note hexatonic derivative, which we call the blues scale. These are really the primary sources for its melodies, riffs, and licks. And so next time we tackle the roots of heavy metal, we will definitely explore precisely this series of influence, tracing 20th century vernacular African-American music from the blues to rhythm and blues, and then finally to early rock and roll. However, 
Though heavy metal does derive a huge amount of its influence from this fantastic African-American musical heritage, an even earlier formative influence, and one that particularly helps to separate metal from other popular music styles, is classical music. So here's a nice quote. <clears throat> but for me, I thought that the first heavy metal was actually classical music. There was some Tchaikovsky that I really liked, some Beethoven that I really liked. We didn't hear much of Richard Wagner in my early childhood. I think I first started listening to Wagner when I was 10 or 11 years old, and the darkness of Wagner was very appealing. I liked the sadness and almost monster-like chords that would evoke so much of the imagination. So yeah, classical music has always been there. That quote is by the great Bill Ward, drummer of our favorite heavy metal, father figures, Black Sabbath. So John, how do you like them apples? Well, I mean, I get it. I see it, particularly with Beethoven. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Beethoven's music tends to be so rhythmically and motivically driven. I, I can see a connection there. Yeah, it's also heavy, right? I mean, with sure. that, that idea of heavy, yeah. it's thick, big, loud chords, balanced off by really soft ones, very dynamic music. Yeah. But yes, yeah, certainly Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, and of course Wagner, who I think we both personally hate very much. Yeah, I'm not a big fan. Not yeah. a big fan. But again, heavy music. I mean, there's, or That's at least heavy moments. Dense. Dense. It's <laughs> dense. It's thick. Lugubrious, yeah. perhaps. But all of these composers that Bill Ward is bringing up are people that I get why he's bringing them up. You know, many of the most important musicians in heavy metal history have also been diligent students of classical music and have used it as a model for the particular brand of musical virtuosity that is associated with metal. And most particularly with the heavy metal hero par excellence, the lead guitarist. This influence has also considerably enriched the harmonic and melodic language of metal well beyond that of traditional blues and rock music. Okay. First, we should clarify that this thing, which is popularly known as, quote, classical music, is really entirely a 20th century musical construct. It's actually this vast hodgepodge of different Eurocentric musical traditions that evolved in very different ways and for very different reasons over the course of approximately 1,500 years. John, would you agree that it's pretty silly to put Gregorian chant and Mozart among the same macro genre? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's just the way that we look at classical music and the sort of prestige that this large thing called classical music gets, it's all sort of part of some uncomfortable 20th century Eurocentric way of looking at the world and, you know, artistic achievement and all that stuff. So uh, although both of us are classical musicians and love this music... At the same time, neither of us are trying, I think, to assert that there's any inherent greatness to something just because you call it, quote, classical music. Oh, yeah, no, there's a lot of terrible classical I music. I would say that, honestly, I, the lion's more yes. bad music. You know, the same thing could probably be said of most musical genres, and I think people know that, but it's true of classical music. Most of it is bad. I mean, a ton of it, a huge wealth of it is terrible. Even... Maybe I'll be struck down by lightning, but even by some of the greatest of composers. Your Beethovens, your Mozarts, these people are uh, wonderful, but they write... They Beethoven, write. Wellington's Victory. Wellington's Goddamn Victory. Terrible piece. Mozart, one of my favorite composers of all time, wrote a concerto for three pianos that is, frankly, garbage. Oh, I don't think I've ever heard that Yes, piece. I, I've had to conduct this piece. Oh. It is not good time. Yeah, I mean, I would argue there's actually a... Although, again, Mozart is one of my favorite composers, too. He's, you know, he's Mozart for a reason. There's a pretty decent swath of music by Mozart that's fine, as you as you like to say. That's, that's okay. Yeah, that's It just fair. gets, you know, think about, like, the all the symphonies until, you know, 25 are, like... That's they, fair. They're serviceable. That's I fair. know he was young, but... That's fair. Okay, but anyway, we digress. So suffice it to say that we are going to talk about heavy metal and we're going to talk about classical music, and we're going to try and connect these things because, gosh dang it, they really are connected. Because this is a heavy metal podcast, not a classical music podcast, we're going to begin by looking at some good old-fashioned proto-metal. Music that is probably pre-heavy metal, but maybe, depending on who you talk to, actual, honest-to-goodness, early heavy metal. That's a bit subjective, but we're going to discuss one of the earliest bands directly responsible for the sort of more virtuosic side of hard rock and heavy metal music, as well as the classical influence of which we are today speaking, and that would be London, England's beloved musical sons, Deep Purple. So, John, before you did the listening that I assigned you for this episode, what, what did you know about or what did you think about the band Deep Purple? Uh, I 
think I knew the same thing everyone knows about Deep Purple, which wah, is... Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> yep, yeah. yeah. Uh, turns out I did actually also know the title track on this song, though I was not aware that it was Deep Purple. <laughs> <laughs> they, oh, you mean the opening track? Yes, yeah, sorry, the opening not the track. title, yeah, the yes. opening track. So the, the album that we're going to talk about today is Machine Head from 1972, and obviously Smoke on the Water is one of the uber classic rock staples for better or perhaps yeah, for worse. Of, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to come out here and say it. I don't know these people listening care about my opinion anyway. Kind of a terrible song. Now, do you know what the song's about? Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it tells you what it's about. That, that's lyrics. a funny thing, right? A lot of people don't know what it's about. A lot of people are like, whoa, I didn't know what that was about. The lyrics literally go like, and so we were on the water, and we looked across it, and some so guy had a flare gun, <laughs> and he sets fire to the venue that we were yeah. going to use. Her like, it's very explicitly laid out. Now, the important thing, which is also said in the song, is at whose concert was the stupid with the flare gun? Uh, Frank Zappa and the mother. Frank Zappa and the mother. So, you know, I'm... I'm a huge Frank Zappa fan, so it's that's a very exciting bit of history. But yeah, I mean, Smoke on the Water is iconic. It is, in my opinion, unarguably the worst song on this album. I, I don't like it I very much. Fair, actually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely love this album. It's by far my favorite Deep Purple album. I'm not the world's biggest Deep Purple fan, but I really do love Machine Head. I think it's an amazing album, and Smoke on the Water's fine. The Highway Star, which is a song we're going to talk about, and is the opening song you reference, gets played on the radio occasionally, but to me, it's it's the much, much better song. I don't know why I'm trying to remember why I knew it, because it wasn't from the radio, because I didn't listen to the radio growing up, because I'm a strange human being. Mm. So it was either a song that made it into the Guitar Hero or Rock Band oeuvre of works. Uh I think that might be true. it was on a Tony Hawk's soundtrack. Okay, I think I'm pretty sure one. one. I'm going to agree with you that one of those things is true. I've I've never played either of those uh, (laughs) gaming paradigms. But but yes, I believe I've heard that, that, that fact that it was on a video game. Well, anyway, suffice it to say Highway Star is a great song. And I think that in general... Machine Head is a great album. Is it a heavy metal album? I've spent most of my life thinking of Deep Purple as a proto-metal band, sort of akin to Led Zeppelin. I'm changing my tune a little bit, as especially after researching for this episode and listening to lots of Mark One, or excuse me, Mark Two and Mark Three Deep Purple, which I'll talk about in a minute. But either way, this is important music. It's foundational to the heavy metal canon, and we're gonna talk about that. Let's get a little background on Deep Purple themselves, because they're an unusually complicated band, and they have a convoluted array of eras and personnel. The band formed in London in 1968, and the original lineup was really actually more of a psychedelic rock band. I think that's probably one of the reasons that uh, a lot of people are hesitant to think of them as a heavy metal band, because their first albums are not remotely heavy metal. They really just sound like, I don't know, like 60s, you know, uh, Again, psych rock, maybe jam band kind of music. And they're bad, I think. Oh, I think that's how I would describe them. Their famous song was Hush, which was, that was a big, it was a big hit in the 60s. It was a cover, uh, whatever. Mark One, Deep Purple, does very, very little for me. However, the band's second period, which we refer to as Mark Two, runs from 1969 to 1973 originally. They did come back together in the 80s, but we're not going to discuss that today. That's when Deep Purple entered the discussion as a possible early heavy metal band. I am more inclined to think of them as proto-metal, mostly because there's so much organ in their sound, and the organ particularly is played by John Lord, who I think is sort of my arch nemesis musically, (laughs) is not very metal. But if you take away the prevalence of the organ in their sound, certainly a lot of the music is really pretty heavy on Machine Head and a lot of what Mark II Deep Purple did. A good faith argument can be made in either direction. Regardless, Mark II Deep Purple was a hugely influential band on many, many heavy metal artists to come. So the original Mark II lineup consisted of Richie Blackmore, guitar, and he was the real heavy metal heart of the band. Ian Gillen, on vocals, whose extreme sort of shrieking vocal style is also pretty damn metal, and who was also, John, you know musical theater. Do you know what Ian Gillen's connection to musical theater is? Hmm. It has to do with one of your favorite composers and one of your favorite musicals. Did he have something to do with Phantom of the Opera? You've got the right composer. You're just uh, too too late. Hmm. Uh, he was the original Jesus in Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> Ian Gillen! As Jesus. 
<laughs> so suffice to say, Ian Gillen, really, really great singer, definitely gives the band much more of a heavy metal edge in Mark II. Roger Glover was the bass player. John Lord, Eric's arch nemesis, keyboards and organ and all that jazz. And finally, Ian Pace, fantastic, fantastic drummer. The new Mark II members were specifically the vocalist Gillen and the bassist Glover. Okay, so the first major project by this lineup was actually a classical music crossover. I know you love classical music crossover, right? John, John looks I, uncomfortable I, right now. I feel like I'm supposed to say yes. <laughs> no, but no, you're not supposed to but say yes. Largely, they're terrible. They literally always suck. There's never been a good one in the history of humanity. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not big into the idea of crossover. Organic influences passed back and forth between genres. Great. Things that are literally called crossover always suck forever and ever. This project, which completely sucks forever and ever, uh, is actually called Concerto for Group and Orchestra. It was composed by my arch nemesis, John Lord, and performed by Deep Purple, along with, you'll love this, the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Malcolm Arnold. It sucks. It's so bad. It's very dated, but the real reason it sucks is because John Lord does not know how to write for an orchestra. The band stuff is, is actually fine. The band stuff's pretty cool. It's just that the orchestral interludes are just so boring. It's just not a good album. So I don't recommend it to anyone out there in podcast land, but Mark II Deep Purple really gets going in 1970 with the classic album In Rock. That is when they truly enter into the heavy metal discussion and when their synthesis of classical elements into metal becomes not crossover but simply organic. That's when it starts getting really interesting. For our purposes, what's important is that Deep Purple were early adopters of classical virtuosity and technique transplanted into hard rock and heavy metal. This is actually particularly true of organist John Lord and guitarist Richie Blackmore. Fundamentally, Lord is really the classical guy, and Blackmore is really the rock guy, and this was a sort of a source of tension in the band at the time. Blackmore's primary influences, like basically every guitarist of his generation, were Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix, but he had studied classical guitar as a child, which actually impacted his fingering technique. He was really one of the first rock guitarists to use the pinky of his left hand in fingering which is kind of odd to think that really? for, a long, yeah, for a long time that just wasn't part of rock technique. So that really obviously adds to what he's capable of doing. I know, it's funny right. that that's, that's, that's the case. Bizarre. Yeah, yeah. Blackmore's approach to soloing and composition, however, are often indebted to classical music, and he actually describes the guitar solo section of Highway Star, which, as we mentioned, is the opening track from Machine Head, as a progression with a lead part that was, quote, just arpeggios based on Bach. So let's, let's pause. We're going to take a listen to Highway Star. This illustrates both the structural complexity and overall instrumental facility of Deep Purple, and it features extended guitar and organ solos by both of the aforementioned dudes. Both solos peak with some serious Baroque concerto-style shredding arpeggios. John, real quick, can you tell the nice people what an arpeggio is? Sure. An arpeggio is a pattern of notes that outlines the functional chord of mm -hmm. whatever harmony you're in or the main notes of the scale you're working with. Right. And specifically, by pattern, they have to be played one after the other. Sure. So what was a chord becomes a sequence of melodic notes. Blackmore's solo opens with some blues licks, but develops increasingly Baroque-like materials, and this is particularly true as he starts to overdub his guitar in thirds in ways exceedingly reminiscent of the composer Antonio Vivaldi, who we'll discuss in just a bit. I'm of the opinion that Italian violin virtuosi like Arcangelo Corelli and Antonio Vivaldi, these were perhaps the original prototype for our heavy metal guitar gods. What do you think? Does that seem like a logical connection to you? Logically, I can see where you're coming from. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I think uh, Archangelo Corelli and Antonio Vivaldi were probably generally way more popular than uh, <gasps> metal guitarists. Than Deep Purple? Yeah. Deep Purple, who like were the biggest band in the world in 1975. Can you believe that? Like, no, Deep Purple. I can't. So when Mark II 
break sort of breaks apart into Mark III. Deep Purple were literally the most popular band in the world. Like they had the most album sales. I believe there were two different versions of Smoke on the Water simultaneously on the charts, the top 10 charts, both the, uh, the album version and the live version. Uh, although I agree that Corelli and Vivaldi were quite popular in their heyday. I would say that Richie Blackmore and Eddie Van Halen, these, these guys were quite popular in their heyday as well. I'm right. I mean, I wasn't around for either of them. Yeah, so right. I, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> You're basically useless, is what you tell yep. me. Yeah, that's good. pretty. I'm, I'm glad that we get we're back. We're back on safe, <laughs> safe territory here. All right, so we're gonna we really are. We're gonna pause now and listen to Deep Purple. If you're interested in a detailed listen, I'll just tell you that Lord Solo runs from one minute and fifty nine seconds to three minutes and five seconds on the track, and Blackmore Solo runs from three minutes and forty seven seconds to five minutes and six seconds. So, John. I feel the need for speed. Cue me up some Highway Star. This is your usual reminder. If you are listening to this, this is the version of this podcast where we do not have the rights to play Highway Star from Machine Head by Deep Purple. For the purposes of better understanding this discussion, I strongly advise you pause the podcast and you take a listen to a recording of Highway Star. You can find a link in the show notes or you can search out the track however you please. And now, back to the podcast. That is some very cool music. Machine Head is definitely my pick for Best Deep Purple album, and this opening track is killer. So Deep Purple's not my favorite, favorite band in history, but, I mean, come on, this is real proto-metal that's afoot in this track. You know, some, there's some people who actually trace the origins of speed metal to these sorts of shredding, precise, lightning-quick tunes that Deep Purple likes to open albums with. Uh, in Rock, there's Speed King. On Fireball, there's the title track. And then on the first Mark III album, Burn, there's also the title track. And like Highway Star, these are all just, like, propulsive, great openers. And frankly, they're all, like, some of Deep Purple's best songs. John, what did you think about Highway Star? And particularly, what did you think about those neoclassical licks found in the latter part of each of the aforementioned solo sections. Yeah, I like this song. This is a fun song. It's good. It's got great energy. It's a driving song, right? Yes, yeah, absolutely a driving song. The kind of song you get a ticket to. Uh, so when you say these neoclassical licks, are you referring to our previously discussed scales and arpeggios? Yes, you know, there's nothing the fundamental more classical building blocks of all tonal music since the dawn of time. Is that the particular influence to which you are referring? Yes. Okay. Just make sure. I mean, they're great. They're not bad. I'm just making sure that that's what you're referring to. I would also say that harmonic underpinnings that come out of the classical tradition, circle fits, things like that, and voice leading, you know, nice movement, nice clean, clear movement from one arpeggio to the next arpeggio. These are things that are not so much found in popular music that isn't classically influenced. All right, lots of arpeggios happen in all music, lots of broken chords, but in the context of a guitar solo, I mean, you're just not going to hear much that sounds so similar to what we might hear in a Vivaldi concerto or something like that. At least I would argue that. I can't argue with you simply because I have not listened to many guitar solos, but I will now make it my life's mission to go and just point out every time there's an arpeggio and a scale in a piece of popular music and ask you if that's because of Bach. You're going to publish an academic paper that humiliates <laughs> me, aren't you? No, I don't care about this that much. <laughs> there's, there's a bullet dodged. <laughs> All right. So in order to prove that I'm smart and John is dumb, we're going to shift gears. And we're going to talk about some actual, we're going to talk about some actual Baroque violin music that I think directly influences the sonic palette that we just heard in Deep Purple, particularly in those solo sections. Are you ready to talk about some Baroque music? Sure. All right. I think it's probably fair to assume that a portion of our listening audience are maybe not terribly well-versed in concert music. And FYI, for those of you who may not know, the Baroque period of classical music lasted from about the advent of opera in Florence in 1600 through the death of the great Johann Sebastian Bach mm -hmm. in 1750. And so from my first classical point of musical comparison, I'm choosing one of the most famous bits in the entire repertoire, Antonio Vivaldi's The Four Seasons. Why Vivaldi? And why this piece, you ask? Well, 
As I suggested earlier, to my mind, the Italian Baroque composer-violinists, particularly people like the great Arcangelo Corelli, who lived from 1653 to 1713, and his successor, Antonio Vivaldi, who was born in Venice in 1678 and died poor and mostly forgotten, alas, in Vienna, Austria in 1741, these were some of the first celebrated instrumental shredders in the history of music. And originally helped to establish our ideas about virtuosity in the Western world and the sort of pyrotechnic fireworks that people often rightfully associate with heavy metal lead guitar playing. Now, John, let's inform the world of a sad truth, which is that you are not generally the biggest fan of Baroque music, right? That is, that is generally true. There is some truly spectacular Baroque music, but I think it, you know, it's part of my musical upbringing. As a bassist, my instrument didn't exist in this era. That's disadvantageous. So every time I get asked to play Baroque music, it is always someone asking me to do something that my instrument just genuinely wasn't made to do. But then also as a conductor, like we weren't a thing either. They didn't need right. conductors. There were people who were just leading from their instruments and playing largely like chamber music. So it's just, it's, it's always been a genre that I've not been excluded from, but just hasn't been a necessary part of my life. And just fundamentally, because it was so long ago now, no one can agree as to how you're supposed to correctly perform Baroque music. So I have the, the feeling that no matter what you do, someone thinks you're wrong. That is definitely and that's true. kind of an exhausting way to live as a musician. Yeah, all right. I think these are all fair points and, and uh, very instructive about why you, for some strange reason, don't enjoy Handel's Messiah. Yeah, Handel's Messiah is crap. <laughs> I'll, I'll just I'll also say that we shouldn't be doing it every year. The Christmas portion is fine. The the Hallelujah chorus, great. Okay, Ooh. big Jesus, hoorah! But like the rest of it just goes on forever and For it's terrible. Us a child is born. I mean, that's from the Christmas portion, obviously. But that's great. Okay. For unto us a child is born. Keep going. Unto us, uh huh, a son is given. Unto us, a child is born. And then what? The same thing for five more minutes. It's not interesting. It is not compelling, and I don't care. Next week on Handel 101, we will further analyze the pros and cons of the Messiah. All right, well, I personally feel like, regardless of your stance on Baroque music or poor Handel's Messiah, pretty much everyone likes the Four Seasons, right? I, I mean, think that's fair, and I am one of those people as well. I mean, it's great music. I am also a huge Four Seasons fan, which I chose specifically because as a group of violin concertos, this really is the genre that originally began this process of showing off dexterity and artistry and creativity in solo instrumentalists, right? This is a genre that's sole purpose is to show off what a soloist can do on an instrument. This is a direct offshoot from the earlier emergence of Italian opera, which basically its original purpose was to show off the virtuosity of a vocalist. And so really what happens in the Italy of the slightly later 17th century is that the concerto transposes the solo duties to an instrument and sort of extracts the orchestra from the opera pit onto the I don't know if concert stage is quite the right way to put it, but outside of the you know operatic theater at that point. And now we have instrumental virtuosity, and we have you know the beginnings, I think, of classical music that sounds like what people think classical music is supposed to sound like. That's all fair. Yeah. So Summer is the second concerto in the Four Seasons. It probably will not surprise anyone to note that it follows Spring, the first concerto, and also the season that comes before Summer. The Four Seasons were published in 1725. Each season, like almost all concertos, in theory, if not always in practice, consists of three movements. And, uh, you know, for, for people who don't understand the concept of movement, I was thinking that the idea of a movement sort of like the individual tracks that make up a larger album yeah, might, be a, yeah, might be a good way to think about it. So the third movement is the finale of this particular concerto. It's titled Presto, which roughly translates to really goddamn fast. Yep. Mm -hmm. So like Highway Star, we've got this very fast piece. And actually, like Highway Star, it's in the key of G. 
They're practically the same music. Now, one of the unique things about the Four Seasons is that although it's instrumental music, Vivaldi actually accompanies the score with text from some seasonal, imagery-rich poetry that he probably wrote himself. So, John, get, dust off those vocal cords. Can you read me this lovely stanza of poetry as translated into English? Alas, his fears were justified. The heavens thunder and roar, and with hail cut the head off the wheat and damages the grain. Ooh. So there's storms. The musical storm is this great tradition. And here we have Vivaldi, I think, pretty much establishing it. I'm not totally sure if there were previous musical storms, but this is certainly one of the most famous and earliest of them. So I'm excited. We're going to take a listen to this short, furiously delightful movement as performed by the group Apollo's Fire and with the soloist on the violin, Francisco Fulano. And I want you to see if you can hear similar elements of alternating ensemble work with solo virtuosity, and yes, a lot of scales and a lot of arpeggios and some circle fits, chord progressions, and, and things like that. There are definitely some shared lick types between Vivaldi and John Lord and Richie Blackmore from Deep Purple. So music, begin! So if you are hearing my voice now, once again, it's time for you to pause the podcast, to go to our show notes, especially if you want to hear that Apollo's Fire performance, which is flaming hot, and check out the third movement, the presto, from the second concerto, Summer, from Vivaldi's Four Seasons. All right, you go do that, and then return to the podcast. Yes! This music really does bear a striking resemblance to the same sort of rhetoric we hear in the instrumental sections and solos in a lot of heavy metal music. It should be clear to anyone who listens to it that the influence of Vivaldi is a profound one on the field of heavy metal. What do you think? Vivaldi? I guess, I'm sure, fine. I, because I can't argue with you. Because you don't know anything! <laughs> I, I, I will accept this relationship. I mean, I okay. do, I, I hear how orally there are similarities. Okay, I'll take that. I am hesitant to believe it without documentation from people saying, yeah, I was influenced by Vivaldi, because this is just so much, like, fundamentally what music has turned into over the history of time. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd just say, if you listen to... Other just rock music. Let's just take take Cream, all right, or Eric Clapton, or something like that. You know, sixties rock music. You're you're gonna generally hear lots and lots of blues sure. influence. It, it, it does not sound like it, this. Yeah, and you're not gonna hear much of what I would call the cla the classical. Again, these fundamental techniques of classical music, and really, I guess you know, all music, all Western music, to a certain degree. But it's just the, the sort of surface influence of classical music to my ears. And again, often the performers will cite this as an influence, like that Bill Ward quote, like Blackmore referring to stealing a progression from Bach, all that sort of stuff. To me, it's just much more prevalent in heavy metal. The other thing that heavy metal brings that we hear in Highway Star and we hear in this movement from Summer is bombast right? High drama. Mm -hmm. That's something that's not, you don't hear much of that in a lot of other rock music. You don't that's hear it. fair. Yeah. So uh, all, I mean, all of these points are fair and I'm not really going to try and argue with you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so you let's move on. You agree that Ligeti is the founder of heavy metal. That I would consider much more compelling than, ah. than Vivaldi. You know, I have considered a future episode on 20th century concert music and heavy metal because there's a lot of connections but I don't think there's actually much influence. <laughs> I don't no, I don't think anyone who was in Deep Purple was listening to Ligeti. I just think it's fun. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, tune in for a future episode. <laughs> season 14 of the Heavy Metal. We're really scraping the bottom of the barrel. Precisely. All right. So look, the 17th and 18th century composers, they're the ones who got the ball rolling. The virtuosity in classical music, however, finds its fullest flowering in the idea of the 19th century virtuoso performer. So John, I got another reading for you here. This is a contemporary description of the legendary Hungarian pianist and composer Franz Liszt. We have now heard him, the strange wonder, whom the superstition of past ages possessed by the delusion that such things could never be done without the help of the evil one. <laughs> 
would undoubtedly have condemned to the stake. We have heard him and seen him too, which, of course, makes a part of the affair. Just look at the pale, slender youth in his clothes that signal the nonconformist, the long, sleek, drooping hair. Those features so strongly stamped and full of meaning, in this respect reminding one of Paganini, who, indeed, has been his model of hitherto undreamt of virtuosity and technical brilliance from the very first moment he heard him and was swept away. How cool is that? Such a metalhead, right? Long hair. I mean, the references to a, in capital letters, evil one. I know. Uh, is uh, remarkably consistent. You know, as you were reading that, I was thinking what we should do is every time we say the name Paganini, actually, we should do it like in Young Frankenstein where the horses rear. <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> this is a description of Franz Liszt, but these 19th century virtuosi, it is the great Italian composer violinist, Niccolo Paganini. <laughs> who lived from 1782 to 1840, he's the original. He's the one who Franz Liszt is really imitating in both his look and, frankly, his performance virtuosity. Paganini is the true prototype for the heavy metal guitar god. In fact, during his life, there was a rumor that he had sold his soul to the devil so that he could become the greatest virtuoso in history. And now how heavy metal is that? Fair. Yeah. I'll allow it. Very heavy metal. So Paganini was a child prodigy, he toured the world starting at the age of 15 and rather rapidly declined into alcoholism as a coping mechanism. Also similar. Yeah, very similar to a great electric <laughs> guitar virtuoso who we're going to talk about in just a few moments and who we talked about on our last episode, the great Edward Van Halen. So as Paganini's career went on, he increasingly became known as a gambler, a drinker, and a womanizer. Here's my favorite rumor that spread about him. Apparently they said that he had murdered a woman then went on to use her intestines as violin strings, imprisoning her soul within his instrument. And it was said that one could hear the sound of the woman's screams emanating from his instrument in performance. <laughs> That's fucking spooky, right? You know, the mind is a fascinating thing. <laughs> you, you think people are just making stuff up here? I hope people are making <laughs> stuff up. Do you want to know that, oh yeah, Paganini, that guy we spend an obnoxious amount of time talking about and studying in music class, he was a murderer who used human intestines as violin strings. I feel like I shouldn't answer that question honestly because <laughs> I, I feel like it would put me in a, in a questionable <laughs> trap you a little bit? <laughs> Let's just say it's an interesting story and leave it at that. All right. <laughs> so aside from using the intestines of uh, females in order to make his violin sound, Paganini also did help to innovate and popularize a number of non-traditional string techniques on the violin, much like we talked about Edward Van Halen doing on the electric guitar in our prior episode on the first musical genius of heavy metal. So, John, as a former internationally renowned bass player, I'm going to let you very briefly explain the following string innovations associated with Paganini. Number one, spiccato. That's playing short. Playing short. You bounce the... You're so useless! <laughs> Jesus! Don't you bounce the bow? I mean, it, it can be... There's, like, the, the bowed spiccato would be, like... One stroke, but that's really more uh, Martello, like the the, the throne. Oh, so okay. spiccato is really just sort of a short stroke. Okay, it's a short stroke. You know all about this. <laughs> you just make a dick joke. <laughs> I really amused myself with that one. <laughs> you know your parents listen to this, right? <laughs> oh, oh. oh, does he edit it out? Does he leave it in? Speaking of dick jokes, left hand pizzicato. <laughs> so, uh, just like on a guitar, the left hand is the hand that you use to traditionally finger the notes on the fingerboard. Normally, you would pluck with the right hand, the same hand you use the bow. This is instead using the left hand to pluck. It creates a, a different kind of sound, but it also allows for really fast transitions between bowed and plucked notes right. that make cool new sounds. Because otherwise you have a bow in the way of your right, right hand. Yeah. And last but not least, uh, the use of harmonics. Right. So I think we talked about this in a previous episode mm -hmm. in terms of the guitar, and functionally it's the same thing. So instead of 
fully depressing the string, you're just touching the string at the sort of resonant nodes within the harmonic frequency that create different pitches than normal that are higher and have a fun sound. Yeah, it's kind of airy. Yeah. It's just different. It gives it a different tune. So Paganini used all those things. He also did a lot with alternate string tunings using one of my favorite words, Scordatura, which I think would be an excellent metal band name. No, if it, it wasn't already. Scordatura! One person would look that up once and be like, what a bunch of fucking nerds. <laughs> Losers. Well, if they if they differently tuned their instrument. Uh, yeah, it's stupid. No. All right. Well, it's still a fun word. <laughs> this is a technique that is really important in heavy metal, particularly the idea of what we call down tuning, which is tuning one or more of the strings lower than is traditional. Yeah, drop D where you take the low E string and tune it one note lower to D. And you might recall, John, when we talked about Tony Iommi of Black Sabbath, he's one of the pioneers of down tuning because of those missing fingertips on his fretting hand, down tuning helped him to better facilitate his playing, made the strings a little looser. So, we just heard a description of Franz Liszt. The contemporary descriptions of Paganini are pretty similar. He had long, dark hair, hollow cheeks, pale skin, and thin lips, and apparently really, really long fingers, which I suspect was very helpful in his violin playing. He was tall and thin with really long legs and long arms, and typically dressed all in black. I think he actually had some genetic disease. I can't remember the name of it, but that, that's what led to his, all of his extremities being unusually long. Oh. Yeah, pretty interesting. He was also known for memorizing his music so he wasn't using a stand or anything and flailing about wildly on stage during his performances. Same. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just like John <laughs> with his short stroke. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> now, honestly, Paganini and Liszt, does this not sound identical to the description of your average heavy metal superstar? Mostly, yes. Yeah, I mean, pretty. I least... don't know about, you know, these these player's finger length, but okay. generally. All right, yeah, this is a fair point, fair point. Um, we'd have to look that up on a case-by-case -case basis, I think. Another one of my favorite Paganini stories. <laughs> so, this one's going to a weird place today. Yeah, yeah, things are getting dark. So Paganini died of larynx cancer on May 27, 1840. Now, this is a great story. He turned away the priest who had been sent to give him the last rites, which is just so cool. They say there's no atheists in foxholes, but Paganini says, screw off, priest. I'm going to die the way I lived. Uh, satanically? I don't know. Anyhow, the most famous Paganini composition is a set of 24 caprices. This is a, a type of composition. It's fairly short pieces. They're formally really free, and they tend to be really virtuosic. These are essentially concert etudes, con you know, study pieces that are performed, basically meant to be entertaining to listen to. Which they never are. I like this one. I, I the Paganini one. I'm, you know, Paganini is not the greatest composer in the world. Some of these caprices are pretty fun. I think. Okay. All right. Well, we're gonna take a listen to Caprice number five. The Caprices were written between the years 1802 and 1870. Uh, 1817, excuse me. They were first published in 1820. This is in A minor, and it's one of the most famous and flashy pieces in the violin repertoire. Now, also, perhaps more importantly, this is a piece that many a heavy metal fan will know from the amazing 1986 film Crossroads, and most particularly from the climactic scene when Ralph Macchio and the voodoo devil Legbuzz guitarist, played by the great Steve Vai, they cut heads. Basically, it's competitive guitar shredding with souls on the line. John, I made you watch this scene a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> You, you thought it was cute? I think you had to be there, Yeah, probably. It helped to be like nine when that movie came out. I could out. see that. Yeah, yeah. Basically, it's Karate Kid, but with blues guitar and Satan instead of Karate and Kobukami. I don't know who Ralph Macchio's manager was, but man, they made the most of, of oh, mm -hmm. him during that time. Definitely, definitely. They squeezed that, uh, that lemon until it dripped. Is that the quote? No. Oh, whatever. It's not. You know... All right, you listen to Paganini, we'll go figure out how to speak <laughs> like normal humans. Cue music! So, if you're listening to this once more, you're going to pause this, take a look at the show notes, have a wonderful Itzhak Perlman recording. In the show notes, you can hear this great caprice, or just go and watch the excerpt from the movie Crossroads. That's, that's fun, too. Although it's not actually the piece, it's just slight, slight derivations from it. So, so, take a listen to the Itzhak Perlman recording. And now, back to the show. John, you may not like Paganini, but come on, this piece screams heavy metal, right? You know, it bears a strong resemblance to the aspects of heavy metal that I don't like. Mm. In the sort of incessant, loud, fast 
slamming away of it all. It really does. Yeah, yeah. I think that's fair. It never shuts up. Yeah. It, the dynamic range is it's limited. Is, is singular. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's interesting. I can see you sharing a dislike of Paganini with some heavy yes, metal. So. Not all. Um, Not all. We have um, found pieces I enjoy. Yes. And it's one of the reasons. Again, there's a. To my mind, there's a clear connection between Paganini and heavy metal music. That particular level of virtuosity didn't really make its way to heavy metal until the year 1978, when the guitar game was forever upped by the king of all heavy metal virtuosi, the magnificent, otherworldly, late, great, Eddie Van Halen. (laughs) On our last episode, we learned that Eddie Van Halen, along with his brother Alex, started off as a young lad studying the olden classical piano. And while it wouldn't be long before he discovered rock guitar and the blues-based influence of Eric Clapton most particularly, his formative musical training had a profound influence on his playing and on some of the unique guitar techniques he would eventually develop. Even as an adult musician, Eddie always continued listening to and studying classical music. And like all right-thinking people, he was particularly enamored of Johann Sebastian Bach and Claude Debussy. John, would you agree that Bach and Debussy are pretty solid musical models? Yes. Good. So arguably the single most transformative recorded moment in the entire history of rock guitar is the second track off Van Halen's 1978 self-titled debut. This was the mostly solo guitar instrumental, really appropriately entitled Eruption. The track is but a wee 1 minute and 28 seconds long, but what a flipping amazing 88 seconds it is. Eddie Van Halen's virtuosic exploration of propulsive licks, wild bends, characteristically colorful and artistic use of the whammy bar, and most importantly, his signature piano-influenced two-handed tapping technique. Well, all this left a lot of jaws on the floor, and the field of rock guitar forever changed. As we discussed back in our second episode, one of the crucial features of the heavy metal guitar approach is both the use of intense amplification and distortion, which separates the sonic palette of the modern electric guitar from its acoustic predecessor. It's particularly the ability to sustain notes that is afforded by the sonic compression that accompanies distortion that really allows the modern electric guitar to emulate and maybe even surpass the technical facility of its classical music precursor, the violin. Eddie's particular brand of extraordinary virtuosity and savvy technological know-how allows his guitar to emulate both the power and velocity of the organ and the nuance and versatility of the violin. And in Eddie Van Halen's guitar playing, a new king of all instrumental shredding was born. We're going to pause one last time and take a listen to this delirious, joyful explosion of virtuosity. Go! Hey, it's John this time, just popping in to let you know the same thing that Eric has told you 87 times throughout this recording and that I know you're not doing. Anyway, back to the rest of the podcast. Yeah! John, I assume that your face was completely melted off by that incendiary performance. Yeah, it's great. It comes from a time when albums were constructed and meant to be listened to in an order. Mm, mm -hmm. And that's something that I miss. I know. It's pretty beautiful in sequence, right? Yeah, and I I appreciate that. Yeah. It's a tough thing to separate it out because it's such a great sequence, particularly leading from Eruption into You Really Got Me. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, Running With The Devil, the first track on that album is great, pretty straightforward. There's not even a real legitimate guitar solo on it. And so just, like, what happens in track number two is all of a sudden the whole world is put on alert that there's a new kid in town. And it's just, it's, it's just great. It's such a, such a cool piece. So I'm going to restrain myself from overanalyzing this piece or getting particularly theoretical or anything. I do want to point out one nifty classical highlight. When 30 seconds in, pretty wonderfully, Eddie actually quotes Etude Number no. 2 by the great French violin pedagogue Rudolf Kreutzer. Ah! Eddie actually modifies the original because he utilizes a rapid tremolo picking style, which livens things up quite a bit. The whole thing's just delightful. John, did you, you agree it's a pretty witty gesture to pull out a Kreutzer Etude in the middle of this heavy metal explosion? Well, sure. It brings a certain level of validity to the argument you've been trying to make throughout this entire episode. So Look I'll, at this. I'll grant you that. Oh, I'm bringing it all home. He's bringing it all home. 
John is sold. He's going to write an, an academic article supporting my premise. Also not going to do that. Damn it. I'll also mention the final climactic section, which starts at 57 seconds in. This is where Eddie finally, for the first time on this album, whips out the full force and neoclassical virtuosity of that two-handed tapping technique he's so famous for. And so, a reminder, what he's doing there is using his left hand to hammer on and pull off, as guitarists will do, and coordinating those same actions in his right hand, just lower down on the fretboard, which basically allows him the same sort of flashy pedal point technique that keyboardists have been making use of forever in toccatas and genres like that, but really was pretty much unfamiliar to guitar technique until this point. The final section of Eruption, the one that uses the tappings, it also outlines a series of chords with a very slow harmonic rate of change, arpeggiated with a rapid sextuplet rhythmic movement, which very definitely emulates the same sort of virtuosic arpeggiated string crossing techniques we heard in our classical examples, right? Yes. Oh, look at that. So you're thinking? He's almost there. I look, I like Eruption a hell of a lot more than I like Caprice Number no. Five, so I have no problem with that statement. Uh, I like I like Eruption more than I like Caprice Number no. Five as well. I will also note Eddie demonstrates really good voice leading. This is the ability to move really seamlessly from one chord to the next, and that's one of the reasons this sounds so fluent and fluid and and great. Smart, smart music making. I personally feel both edified and enlightened. So, John, are you overwhelmed? by a newfound appreciation for this brief but mighty musical masterpiece. No. You just like it. And yeah, it's, it's nice. Yeah, you liked it before, you like it now? Yes. I've had my, my necessary impact. Mm-hmm. Perfect. You don't dislike it now no, as a result. No, of I did not develop a hatred because <laughs> of its correlation to uh, Caprice Number no. 5. I'm going to consider that a win. All right. All right, so Eddie was the best, and this piece is just such a magnificent introduction to his extraordinary sonic palette. We're coming to the end here. Are you beginning to be convinced that there is some sort of connection between classical music and heavy metal music? Combining the combination of quotes from the performers that directly reference composers of the sort of classical vein Mm -hmm. with direct musical quotations Mm -hmm. from the repertoire, I will allow that there may be some correlation between classical music generally as a genre, and heavy metal. You happy? Yes. I'm happy too. I think that's really nice. All right, we've got a lot to reflect on and absorb until next time. So, John, why don't you tell the beautiful people where they can reach us if they're interested in sharing their own unique and special insights via email or voice message. So if you want to send us an email, you can reach us at heavymetal101podcast at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to yell at us, you can leave us a voicemail at anchor.fm forward slash heavymetal101podcast. Additionally, please remember to rate and review our fine show if you get a chance. If you're on one of those podcast dispensaries like Apple Podcasts that give you the opportunity to do so, that is an excellent way to get the word out about our scrappy little show, and we'd certainly appreciate any five-star ratings or delightful reviews or anything like that. (laughs) So that's our show. Please do come back on by soon for another erudite and insightful episode of the Heavy Metal 101 Podcast. John, can you sing us a nice plagal amen to close? No. Great!